And now here is singer-songwriter, broadcaster, audio-video artist, entertainment agent and your host for the Dharmic Evolution. It's the master storyteller himself, James Kevin O'Connor. It was 1963. I was eight years old and in the car with my mom. We just turned on to Swain Place off of uh, Northfield Avenue in West Orange. Like we'd done like a hundred times before over the last eight years, I was in the front seat, no seatbelts. We were almost at Ma and Pop's house, which was my mom's parents, my grandparents. As we turned off of uh, Rollinson Street onto Swain Place, something changed. As we got down the block a few hundred feet, we could see some woman just starting to back out of uh, driveway. And further down the block, another car, a convertible, was coming in the opposite direction toward us. As the scene came into focus, you could see the convertible start to accelerate at a rapid speed, and it seemed as if they were turning their car into a missile heading straight for this woman's car who was backing out of the driveway. It was so intentional, you could just see the whole thing unfold. My mom, Betty, immediately slammed on the gas, not the brakes, the gas. She flew down the street, got up to where the woman was trying to back out, passed her, and swung her station wagon right in front of the oncoming convertible car, causing this this maniac guy to slam on the brakes and skid to a stop only a foot from our car. All of this ruckus caused uh, Pop, my grandfather, to come ambling out of his house, 20 Swain Place, and he got into a verbal battle with this guy in the convertible who was clearly out of his mind with road rage. It became apparent that his intent was to run his car right into this woman's car and cause her severe injury, if not kill her. My grandfather, he was a sly fox. Pop, as he walked out in front of this guy's car, he was saying to him, Look what you did to the street here. You got it all marked up with your skid marks. He was really gathering a visual of this guy's license plate number. You see, Pop was the town clerk in, in West Orange, and he knew everybody in town, knew all the police force, knew all the fire department, the judges, the clerks, the, uh, the court people, everyone. You know, he was the guy. So meanwhile, this guy is throwing a complete nut in his car, yelling and screaming at Pop. Hey, get out of the road, Santa Claus. And the woman backing out, now shielded by Betty's car, drove off and extricated herself from the situation in the opposite direction unscathed thanks to the bravery of my mom, Betty. So that was my first taste of righteousness. And what do I mean by righteousness? Um, You know, Jesus refers to righteousness in the Bible constantly, and it's in all the apostles, uh, the book of uh, Luke and Mark and Matthew and James. It's in there repeatedly and you know, in the, if you look it up and Google it, it's goodness, it's virtue, it's uprightness, it's decency, integrity, worthiness, uh, mor- morality, justice, honesty, all of these things. And my mom, never ever in my whole life did I hear her use the word righteousness. However, she exhibited that virtue in all of her daily actions and it rubbed off on me it was it was just a blessing to witness this and see what righteousness was in action 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dharmic Evolution. Uh, my mom passed last night. I was fortunate enough to be with her um, and witness her taking her last breaths. And um, it was been it has been a an amazing eleven months. Uh, eleven months ago, I had planned on moving to Nashville, and um, a funny thing happened on the way to the airport. <laughs> Uh, my mom was really was getting sick and sicker, and I was fortunate enough to be in a position in my life where I had the opportunity to move into her house and be with her for the last 11 months of her life. And um, she had dementia, and it got to be pretty severe, and she had some other complications that developed as far as sickness and you know, lung infections, and, you know, she fell, broke a couple bones, and it was just an ongoing saga of downhill um, physically and, you know, mentally debilitating. But, boy, she never lost her zest for life. She was just the most gregarious, the most energetic, and um, probably one of the most compassionate um, and joyful uh, women that ever lived. Seven kids, uh, 16 grandchildren, and uh, we're up to, what is it, six six great-grandchildren thus far, so it's quite a family, but uh, I just wanted to share a couple of stories today uh, to honor her memory, and uh, I appreciate you guys being here, and um, I'm happy to share a couple of memories with, uh, with my mom, Mary Elizabeth O'Connor, known as Betty to all. And that first story was just the tip of the iceberg of just um, so many things that she did in her life, which were brave, this petite woman who had seven kids, just this little firecracker of uh, 115 pounds of um, sheer will and determination, steadfastness, and, um, you know, blessed by the Lord in her family life, and willing to reach out to any new neighbor, new friend with a handshake, a meal, a smile, um, and so many other things that she did for so many. It was March 1964. We lived at 392 St. Cloud Avenue in West Orange um, in a three-bedroom house with one bathroom, and we had eight people living in that house. Um, my parents slept on a pull-out red <laughs> pull-out sofa couch in the living room. That was their bedroom. And uh, I remember my father coming up in, in March, and um, he came up to say goodnight to my brother Andy and I because we shared a room up on the second floor. And it, he, he had a very limited conversation this evening. We're in bed, and we're uh, getting ready to go to sleep. I was nine years old. I remember him coming in and saying to us, boys, we're going to have another baby. And I remember laying on my back and looking up at him and saying, another one? Without missing a beat, he slowly turned around with a small groan, shaking his head, eyes looking toward the ceiling as, as if looking for divine intervention. And then he slowly retreated downstairs to his bedroom the living room. So my mom was running around making lunches before school, getting kids together, getting kids ready for school, making sure everybody had shoes. Did you have your book bag? Did you have your homework? 
Did you have uh, clean clothes? Um, she would take everything that the world would throw at her, but there was always room for more. She would always take time to make a meal for someone, send it out all wrapped up, complete with a side of gravy, bread, dessert. She was truly a superwoman and uh, who never complained. She just got it done. August 1964. I was at Ma and Pop's house again. Ma was in her big green chair on one side of the living room. Pop was in his easy chair on the other side watching the Mets get killed. I would always ask him, hey, Pop, how the Mets doing? Oh, they stink, he would say so disgusted because he loved his Mets. And he would have to wait like five more years for his beloved Mets to become the amazing Mets and win the World Series in 69, which was one of the high watermarks of his life. I was in my normal um, uh, phone receptionist duties, which I always seemed to uh, inherit every time I visited Ma and Pop. And the phone rang and uh, I was at my post in the front parlor. You know, we had this like, um, this interesting big wide open parlor when you walked in the front door. And, uh, you know, there was a big old wooden staircase, old creaky house that, that went up to the second floor and there was a landing on, on halfway up that you could go down the backside and get to the kitchen, which, which was always kind of cool. So you could come down from the upstairs halfway and if you didn't want to come to the front of the house, you could take a left and go right into the kitchen and hit the cereal or the bananas or the cookies or whatever you felt like uh, attacking because at grandma's house, that's what you could do. Anyway, the phone rings and I'm at my post and um on this old bench seat where they kept the phone had the, the classic black dial <laughs> with the, a loud, annoying ring. Um... And I had this intuitive love for electronics, wiring, anything that had the slightest aroma of cool and creative, I was in. So the phone and the TV were the only high-tech thing in my world at this time. But anyway, the phone rings, and I pick up the phone, and it's mom. She just delivered number seven. Hi, mom. Oh, it's a boy? And then now mom and pop, they start with the banter. And pop can't hear to save his life. He's got two hearing aids at this point and he's all the way in the other room in his chair across the way and a little bit closer on the other side of the living room is, is my grandmother, Ma. So Ma interprets. So Ma is yelling out, Dad, Betty had the baby. Huh? She had the baby. How? What kind of baby? What is it? What is it? It's a boy, Ma. Dad, it's a boy. Huh? It's a boy. Oh, what's his name? What's his name, Kev? Hey, Mom, what's his name? Oh, Darren? His name is Darren, Ma. Darren? Yeah, Darren. Dad, his name's Darren. Darren? No, Darren. Gabby? No, Darren. Tavis? This went on for like six minutes. I couldn't believe it. So this kind of thing went on all day long. The two of them back and forth. Pop can't hearing, not understanding what Ma is saying. Ma translating, uh, losing her voice, almost trying to translate. 
So that was the, the, the story of Ma and Pop and having number seven. So on uh, August 26, 1964, into the world came Darren Peter O'Connor. It was 1965. I was 10 years old. I was at Ma and Pop's again, and I was in the parlor again, and Ma and Pop were in their respective chairs in the living room again. It was either late fall or early winter because the storm door was on, and I was inside, which is unusual. I'm always outside, so I'm waiting for my father to pick me up from work on his way home. The phone rang, and I answered again. It was Mom. Her voice telegraphed right to the core of my soul. There is something wrong here. Immediately, she didn't even say hello. Get Pop. What's the matter, Mom? Get Pop. She cut me right off. Pop. He must have uh, heard the anxiety in my voice because he came into the room really quickly. So he stayed on the phone for only a few brief seconds. Hung up and immediately called one of his friends at the fire department, since he knows everybody in the town of West Orange, being the town clerk. Our house was on fire. My mom, instead of trying to get the fire department or police, uh, she knew she could get more action quickly by getting her father on the phone than anything else. So no such thing as 911 in those days. Um, She was probably frantic. And um, Pop was on the phone immediately with... Uh, one of the fire department people and uh, calling it in where to go get there right away just then this is all happening within like a one minute span my dad comes in with his business suit on and his long overcoat so it must have been you know uh, winter or late fall or something and pop without even breaking stride with the current conversation he's in yells gump your house is on fire My father immediately exited, slamming the door and damn near taking the hinges with him. They called him Gump after the, at the time in the 30s and 40s, there was this cartoon character called Andy Gump. So uh, the Andy Gump thing stuck with him his whole life. He was Gump. So back to the fire. This means my mom was at home with a newborn and a house full of kids and had to get everyone out with what clothes and bare essentials she could all by herself. Only Betty could pull this off. So I don't, I don't, I didn't get any of the details after that happened. Other than there was um, electrical wiring under my bed that caused the fire to start. The irony in that is that years later I became an electrician and an electrical contractor. So there must have been some stigma attached to that um, down in the. Uh, backbone of my subconscious somewhere saying, hey, you better learn how to do wiring properly. So after the repairs were all completed, we all were back together because we we were displaced all over the place. We were at grandparents' house and friends and the whole family was split up because you obviously couldn't live there. So we got it all back together and, you know, we're back in the house and the house is just you know, we're, we're just busting out at the seams there. Now there's nine people in a three-bedroom house, one bathroom. Uh, the master bedroom is the living room. Um, you couldn't imagine this place, but you never thought like you needed anything. It was just one of the things that my mother pulled off that, you know, she always made sure we always had good shoes. We always had plenty to eat. Um, and I knew they were probably living paycheck to paycheck back in those days. 
But we always had enough each and every day. She would make sure that we had enough. And I never remember, I never remember as a kid going, oh my God, I feel so deprived or, um, you know, somebody has it better than me. It was just, it, it, this was your world and you just, you rolled with it. I was actually happy. I mean, I was out in the woods every day playing. We played rough. We, you know, we were end, ended up in the hospital all the time, beating the crap out of each other with, with sticks and, you know, playing with swords and, and uh, sports, playing tackle football, sometimes on the, on the concrete. <laughs> you know, we, we just did crazy stuff. So we're having one of our classic Saturday afternoon backyard barbecues after everything's settled back down. And this is one of those things where all your cousins, your neighborhood friends, everyone would come over and you have a picnic. And back then, everybody had lots of kids and there was no such thing as entertainment like as we know it now today. Um, We had maybe six or seven channels on a black and white TV that was only allowed to be on, I think, on weekends. We weren't allowed to watch TV on school nights. And I remember us sitting outside in the backyard. My my father was talking to one of my uncles about the size of the family in relationship to the size of the house. And, you know, and then he exclaimed, you know what? I think I want to move west, Bill. I was over the moon. I'm like, we're moving west. Oh, my God. I had dreams in my head of wild rivers in Montana, the badlands, wild horses, western sunsets. The mountains and valleys of Utah, the coast of sunny California. This is going to be great. It turns out his version of West and my version of West were so diametrically opposite, they couldn't have been further apart. His West meant 8.7 miles away West or 21-minute car ride from West Orange to Florham Park. That's where we ended up, and then an entire new chapter started in 1968. So in the spring-slash-summer of 1968, Gump and Betty, with Andy, James Kevin, Sean, Brian, Colleen, Dennis, and Darren, all headed west and moved to Florham Park, New Jersey. This was another uh, heroic, heroic tale of Betty in action. Um, we packed up this Allied Vans moving company van, and uh, along with the movers, of course, and took everything we owned, but they couldn't fit it all, of course, because I had a bet with the moving guy who came. He said, hey, think we'll get it all in? I said, nope. He just laughed this sly little grin. You watch us. You watch us, son. At the end of the day, they were, they were pushing and pushing, trying to get those doors closed. No, they had to come back. Anyway, we worked like dogs because we had no place to go. It was, you know, kind of like living on the edge, which uh, my parents were very brave in that way, especially my mother. She would just get it done. Betty was going to get it done. We were going to unpack that van, even though we got there at, God knows what time it was. It was like all day to load that truck. And we got there sometime in the evening and had to unpack beds and sheets and set them up because there was no place for anybody to sleep. So the logistics with the younger kids to get them someplace, to pick them up the next day, to move into the house, to be able to cook to be able to open up boxes and find pots and pans. And it's just, you know, people just would never dream of doing things today like the things 
that my mother would do. She would do it all, and she still had energy to spare. My dad passed away in 2008, I believe, so it was like, um, you know, 10 years ago now. It might even be 11 years, so my memory's not as good as it used to be. But anyhow, it was really tough on my mom to uh, go through, you know, the first two years were really tough. And after that, you know, she, you know, she found her sea legs a little bit. Um, she's still you know, still grieved for him. They were, they were childhood sweethearts. They met in, um, I think they met even in grade school or something. And in high school, they got together as, as uh, boyfriend and girlfriend and they never left. You know, it was just through high school and got married right away and I started having kids right away. And, um, you know, the, back then it was so strange because when I look back, I go, wow, my mom had four kids by the time she was 25 years old, uh, it's almost conceivable, inconceivable by today's standards because, you know, at 25, you're still a kid. And you got four kids of your own. So um, moving to Florham Park, the last, um, fast forward to the last uh, 11 months. In May of last year, I moved into her house. I was on my way to Nashville. Um but I got sidetracked because she was really getting sick and uh, having, you know, she had multiple hospital visits, pneumonia, double lung infection, a few falls, broken bones, uh, but nothing could stop her gregarious nature. Even after she was diagnosed with dementia a few years ago, her spirit never dampened. Um, she never gave up. She was just, um, she would go out seven nights a week if she, if she could find company. She would burn people out. Now I'm ready to go out, you know. Uh, I remember she was, you know, she's 87, 88. Last, I guess it was about in June of uh, this year. And my brother brought her home and I'm, I'm kind of waiting for her because I was like the night nurse. I mean, we have a very dedicated, wonderful person here helping out, Justina, who has been just awesome. So the two of us were kind of double teaming, helping mom with everything she needed help with. So I'm waiting for her to get home. It's like it's like 10.30. Where the hell is she? My brother wheels in at like 11 o'clock, and I go out in, through the garage, out to the apron there where they're pulling up with the car, and uh, she's they just get her out of the car, and I'm like, where were you? Where have you been? You are out late. You're way past your bedtime. And they all started busting up laughing because I'm lecturing my mother who was, uh, who now I'm waiting up for her. What the hell is this <laughs> to come home? So um, we had some really, really fun times over the last 11 months. And it got to be, uh, you know, challenging in many respects, physically, emotionally, mentally, However, the blessings that came out of uh, this time spent with, with her far outweighed any kind of um, tax, taxation on my life, if, for lack of a wetter, better way of putting it. It was more of um, a learning situation. Like I learned a lot about dementia. I learned a lot about my mother. I learned a lot about myself and my ability to cope with stressful situations and things that are out of your control and how to deal with them. So God gives you, um, as Justina always puts it so eloquently, um, God will never stress you past your ability to handle situations. 
He doesn't give you more than you can handle. And his grace is always sufficient. So when I came here on May 1st, 2018, um, I prayed for my mother to um, be able to stay in her own home and die in her own bed in a peaceful sleep surrounded by a loving family and friends and all her wonderful possessions. And God granted me every bit of that wish and more. I was with her as she passed at one uh, fifty-nine. She took her last breath on um, Monday evening. Um, I'm getting my days all mixed up. It was March 19th, so it was one uh, fifty-nine in the morning, and she had been struggling all day with you know breathing. Her airway was getting more and more compromised, and it was it was a labored breathing. Um, she had very little medication and very little pain. Um, and these were the blessings that God uh, uh, gave her that she was able to pass peacefully. And as I witnessed for about two hours her going, I could, you know, I kept getting up and I was laying down, I was listening, I was sitting in the chair and, and I'm in bed and I'm in the next room and listening to, I'm breathing. My breathing was tied to her breathing. I was kind of almost like, you know, breathing with her. And I kept getting up and saying, maybe she needs more time. And uh, finally, I went back one last time and I felt a nudge telling me, which is the Holy Spirit, get up, go in there. And and I did. I put on, you know, my pajamas and I just stood over her and watched as she peacefully took her last breaths. It took about maybe, maybe 10 minutes or so. But there was no pain. There was no labored breathing. There was, there was nothing what I would consider close to being even a struggle. And it was just, it was mystical, it was magical, it was heaven sent. It was just a really, if, if there's a beautiful death, my mother had a beautiful death. Um, so to that end, I will always be um, extremely thankful and feel extremely blessed that she was able to um, accomplish that, and it, it's a wonderful way to go to be in that in that position. And I'm just thankful to my entire family that everyone was here. Um, I, my actually, my one brother and sister-in-law were in Aruba, and she hung on, you know, hours for them to get back. They didn't get back until I think it was almost nine o'clock that night. So she was hanging on, and they got back, and, um, you know, I, this is another thing that God does for a, for a family, and it was just amazing to see them allowed to, uh, you know, see them be allowed to say their goodbyes and, uh, and have my mother visit with every single member of the family, all the kids, all her kids. Her grandchildren were here, great-grandchildren were here. Everybody came to see her, so... Um, to that end, I just wanted to conclude by saying it was an honor, a privilege um, to be um, one of these six sons and one of the seven kids of uh, Mary Elizabeth O'Connor, otherwise known as Betty. She had so many names. Betty Blue, Betty Bruiser, Betty. Betty was what it was all about. She was um, a dear friend. If you To know her was to love her. And <laughs> she was feisty. 
She was a petite little fireball. Boy, if you served her a hamburger that she said she wanted at medium well and it came rare, boy, she, you were going to hear it, you know? And if she told you no pickle and you brought the pickle, she'd hand it back to you. I said I didn't want this. <laughs> she could speak her mind. At times like these, suddenly a wind blows this little gift into your backyard or your world Kind of like a, an autumn day when the wind blows all the leaves into your yard and you go outside and you see this one that stands out. It's beautifully red and has these uh, incredible fractals on it. You just have to pick it up and study it. And uh, this, which I'm about to read, is one of those gifts. It's called an Irish exit. Aging is indifference. My father always warned me, if I lingered lazily too far into the ocean, the tide could not pull me back. I resist the riptide. I stay close to shore, close to sunburnt summer days, seasoning my skin with freckles, only shaking off sand for dinner time. Wooden grandfather clocks are for decoration. Each summer's end leads to anticipating the next. Seven decades my senior, I could still catch you stealing cookies in the kitchen, mimicking the giggles of a toddler, telling old stories with a sailor's grin, beaming with baby blue eyes. So sudden, a lifetime of cheerfulness got swept away. That was written by my wonderful niece, Kelsey O'Connor, she wrote that for her grandmother hours before she passed away. Thank you, Kelsey. And to all you uh, friends out there of the Dharmic Evolution who have reached out to me with your comments, your prayers, your condolences, uh, your warm wishes, I can't thank you enough uh, for being so kind and so gracious uh, in the spirit of, of what has gone on over the past um these past 48 hours, and uh, I really feel you. I feel the love, and, and I so appreciate um, every one of you. So um, I'll be seeing you soon, and Mom, it was a pleasure, an honor, and uh, I will see you in heaven with Jesus at some time in the future, but not for a long time. I'll always love you. God bless you, Mom. I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Father, Amen. Who art in heaven, Amen. Hallowed be your name, Amen. Your kingdom come, Amen. Your will be done, Amen. On earth, Amen. As it is in heaven. Give us this day Amen. our daily bread. Amen. Forgive us our trespasses Amen. as we forgive those Amen. who trespass against us. Amen. Lead us not into temptation, Amen. but deliver us from all evil. Amen. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 